Awesome. Well, good afternoon, everyone. It's so good to be with you. Believe it or not, this is a live event. Everything that you're seeing today is live out of our studio. And I want to thank our incredible production team and worship team and everybody behind the scenes for working so hard to bring the good news that Jesus is alive to people on university and college campuses all over Ontario. Welcome. Glad to have you with us. If you've never met me, my name is Robin. I Along with my wife, we serve as the lead pastors here at Lift Church. And this is the second of four parts looking at this earth-shatteringly good news idea that Jesus is the center of history. That Jesus is the center of history. On Friday evening, we looked at the very somber facts of Jesus' death. We explored in quite detail that Jesus really did live, that he really did die at the hands of the Romans. And more than simply dying, we explored that Jesus chose to die as an act of sacrificial love. However, many good people have died throughout history for sincerely held beliefs. That in itself is not a particularly significant statement. Rather, the Christian faith is built on an idea so outlandish that if it's true, it changes everything. And if it's false, it's sheer lunacy. The idea that someone who was dead came back to life. You see, the Christian faith without the resurrection is nothing. Worse than nothing, the Christian faith without the resurrection is dangerous, and Christians are to be pitied as fools. However, if the resurrection did happen, it is the light by which we see everything else. As the early Christians taught this quite emphatically, the Apostle Paul, one of those Christian leaders, summarized it quite succinctly in 1 Corinthians 15, his letter to one of the churches, he said, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. The resurrection of Jesus, his coming back to life, was and remains the central idea of the Christian faith. And if it happened, then it is the means by which we understand every other part of the Christian worldview and invitation. To understand this, the uh, preeminent scholar of the New Testament and particular first century Christianity, N.T. Wright, said of Jesus' resurrection this. He said, there is no form of early Christianity known to us that does not affirm that after Jesus' shameful death, God raised him back to life. In other words, all the evidence we have is that all the early Christians believed Jesus rose from the dead. This is crucial because it means that resurrection was not a theological idea developed to explain the rise of Christianity. 
Rather, resurrection was the reason Christianity came into existence in the first place. Without the resurrection, we would not have Christianity. And the very earliest writings about Christianity from a wide array of people all affirm this fact. So the question that I want to grapple for a few moments together is, how do we know if Jesus actually rose from the dead? Well, in order to answer that, we need to dive into some history. And in short, the first and most important reason we know Jesus rose from the dead is because the people that were there wrote about it. Those that knew Jesus watched him die. They buried him in a tomb and they subsequently saw him come back to life again. This coming Thursday, we're going to explore more of their story and what exactly it was in their lives that changed and why their response is so significant. But before we do that, we can maybe fairly ask, well, how do we know if the version of the story of the resurrection that we have in our Bibles or in the New Testament is an accurate representation of what was originally recorded? In short, has the Bible been changed and is it accurate? Well, to put it bluntly, the New Testament, the story of Jesus, is by far the most reliable document from ancient history by many orders of magnitude. Now, you might say that's a pretty bold claim. Now, when we can, how, where, where does that claim come from? Well, in order to uh, verify the accuracy of our historical document, there's three really important variables that we have to look at. How close was the original event to the earliest manuscript found of that event. In other words, how much time passed between the event and when the event was written down. Secondly, how many copies or versions of that manuscript do we have? And thirdly, how consistent are the manuscripts? If we're gonna find out if that, what is written down is accurate, we have to look at how quickly it was written, how often it was written, and how consistently it was written. And so, for example, if we look at some other historical documents, you can look at, for example, Caesar's Gaelic Wars uh, document from about 50 BC. And of that particular document, a very important set of documents about Roman history, there are about 251 manuscripts that have been found. And the most recent of those manuscripts dates from the 9th century AD. So almost a thousand years later. <clears throat> Plato's Tetralogies was written around 400 BC and it has about 210 manuscripts. And the most recent full manuscript or significant manuscript we have is from about 900 AD as well, 895. And there's a small portion of it from the second century BC. And these are kind of well-established, well-known documents for which there is considered to be good evidence. Well, the New Testament, by comparison, has over 5,800 Greek manuscripts alone, with some of those manuscripts being dated to only 50 years after the events that they were recorded. 
In other words, very soon afterwards in a very large quantity of documents. One of the uh, New Testament per, uh, critics and a professor from Princeton, Bruce Metzger, wrote this. He said, in contrast with these figures of other ancient works, the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by a wealth of material. The time between the composition of the books in the New Testament and the earliest extant copies is relatively brief. Instead of a lapse of a millennium or more, as is the case for not but a few classical authors, several papyrus manuscripts of portions of the New Testament were copied within a century or so after the composition of the original documents. Now, beyond these original documents, even if we didn't have so many actual New Testament manuscripts, biblical scholars could actually reconstruct the entire New Testament from quotations, ancient quotations of the New Testament from early church leaders. Of the New Testament quotations alone in the ancient world, there are more than 36,000 manuscripts containing quotations of the New Testament. What this means is that the combination of the quantity of manuscripts, the quantity of extra-biblical references to the New Testament, and the short delay between the manuscript means that we can be very confident in the accuracy of the New Testament we have. This is really important. Because of the confidence in the manuscripts, we can be extremely confident that the original authors of the New Testament genuinely believed Jesus had risen from the dead. Because of the manuscript evidence, there's every reason to believe the authors of the New Testament genuinely believed Jesus rose from the dead. Now, we're going to explore more about what they believed and how their life demonstrates that, as I mentioned on Thursday. But let's look at what they actually wrote down. Well, you might say, yes, the New Testament reports the resurrection of Jesus, but that doesn't mean that it happened. Maybe they were wrong, maybe they were mistaken, or maybe they simply made it up. Well, how do we handle this? Well, let's look at the textual evidence. Let's look at what the New Testament actually says. First of all, there was no body. Jesus resurrection would have been incredibly hard to fake. Because Jesus was executed as the would-be leader of a rebellion against the Romans, the Romans, in response, entirely reasonably stationed guards outside his tomb and would have wanted to make sure that Jesus stayed dead, that his body was not stolen by his followers. To the suggestion that Jesus had risen from the dead, the Romans merely needed to open the tomb and present the body, and that would have been the end of Christianity. Keeping in mind that Christianity exploded very rapidly as a result, and all the Romans needed to do was open the tomb. But there is no historical evidence that they did that or could have done that. When we look at the actual New Testament uh, accounts, there's a whole set of uh, information that is really interesting. It could be, for example, argued that the New Testament was 
entirely fabricated because the disciples were nefarious or perhaps they simply wanted the resurrection to be true. But I want to highlight why it's highly unlikely that the, the New Testament authors fabricated the idea. And there's at least four reasons I'm going to explore. First of all, there's what could be called the inconvenient details that add veracity to the accounts. The first reason uh, that we can trust their account is that the primary witnesses to Jesus' resurrection or the initial witnesses were all women. In fact, all four Gospels say that it was women who first encountered the resurrected Jesus. Matthew 28 says this, The angel told the woman, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the, the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Now this detail is important because women were not considered to be credible witnesses. In fact, Luke, in Luke's account of the gospel, he even explicitly says that the disciples initially thought the testimony of the woman was nonsense. You can read that in Luke 24, verse 11. If the authors of the gospels were seeking to fabricate the resurrection story, they certainly wouldn't have used women as the initial witnesses. It's a detail that only makes sense if the events actually happened. Secondly, there's what we could call embarrassing details. The gospel accounts are not flattering to the authors. In fact, it shows the authors of the gospel accounts as weak, timid, afraid, and ultimately betrayers of Jesus. At least one person is highlighted as running away naked. The disciples are not presented as honorable, wise, or in control. To be blunt, the gospel accounts of the disciples show them behaving quite foolishly, but in many ways quite reasonably. There's no reason that somebody trying to concoct a story to get people to believe them would include such unflattering details, unless they were simply reporting what they saw happen. The third reason we can trust the accounts beyond just the, the response that they had, is the important piece of evidence that the gospel accounts of the resurrection are not all identical. In fact, there are many notable, sometimes even seeming contradictions between the resurrection accounts. For example, in Luke's account of the resurrection, there are two women that see Jesus, but in John's account, it only lists one. Now, it might initially look like the differences between the resurrection accounts mean they're not reliable. But is that true? We need to remember that witnesses to an event will remember the important details differently. And it would be highly unusual and very suspicious if all four gospel accounts, which had different authors, contributors, it'd be very bizarre if they agreed on every single detail. They should contain differences because they contain different perspectives. However, despite the differences in the resurrection accounts, all of the gospel accounts are unified 
on the five most important details. One, that Jesus really died and was buried. Two, that the disciples were not prepared for Jesus' death and were distraught as a result. Three, that the tomb was empty on Easter morning. However, their response was not faith, but doubt and fear. Four, the disciples encountered a number of experiences which, took, which they took to be appearances of Jesus risen from the dead. And five, all four gospel accounts contain the disciples proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem. As we'll discover, most of those accounts contain further stories of them suffering or even dying for their faith. Yes, there are dissimilarities, but they are completely unified on the core message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Strong evidence of eyewitness testimony. We have every reason to believe that the disciples were doing their best to report what they felt actually happened. Okay, okay, maybe you'd say they were simply hallucinating or just genuinely mistaken. Maybe they were uh, confused in what they experienced. Well, you see, Jesus appeared first to the woman, then he appeared to the disciples, then he appeared in large groups, small groups, inside, outside, at varying times of the day, he ate meals with them, and he taught with them. The gospel accounts even include an instance of more than 500 people interacting with Jesus. It is possible that a few grief-stricken people could hallucinate or imagine, or in desperation even deceive themselves into believing an incredible story. And there's ample evidence that yes, grief-stricken people can believe quite strange things. However, for so many people over so many weeks in so many different scenarios to all have a completely unified understanding of what happened in Jesus' resurrection is highly unlikely. Of the 11 encounters with Jesus that people had with him after his resurrection, all of them involved people who knew him before his death and could verify who he was in coming back to life. And finally, the fourth reason we could be confident in the story is that no one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. The idea that people could come back to life was as foreign, bizarre, and unexpected to the disciples as it would be to our 21st century scientific minds. This is really important. The Jewish people and all of Jesus' followers were initially Jewish, did not expect that the Messiah would die, and they certainly did not expect or even imagine that he would come back to life. Yet despite the fact that the physical resurrection was a crazy idea, it was exactly what the disciples believed and taught. Now you see ideas, especially crazy ideas, or ideas that are unexpected or revolutionary take a very long time to develop and usually do not develop with consistency and harmony. In other words, strange ideas or uh, revolutionary ideas usually develop over a long period of time and in many different directions. 
However, all of the early Christians were completely unified in their belief that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Now, there's been some ideas uh, and claims that while the early Christians just invented the idea of the resurrected Jesus by borrowing it from other places, you'll see people refer to maybe Osiris or Horus in this case or other mythological stories. And these ideas have been popularized by a set of YouTube documentaries. Now, I don't want to spend a great deal of time on this, but in short, there is no evidence to support that claim. There's no evidence from any credible historians or archaeological data to suggest that the early Christians borrowed the idea of the resurrected Jesus from anywhere else. The overwhelming historical data validates that the belief in the resurrection of Jesus was A, uniquely Christian and not derivative from any other source, B, suddenly well-developed, appearing in Jerusalem almost immediately and coherently, as if it was in response to news of an event, and C, it generated a very large gather, uh, following very quickly. The best way to make sense of that, those facts, is that it's because it's what the early Christians believed had happened. The implication of the resurrection, the implications of the resurrection are staggering. The gospel is not a set of beliefs about a moral, ethical code. It is a news about an event in history. The gospel is entirely unique in the realm of theological religious ideas. Every other faith system is based on one of two other possibilities. A, many faith systems are based on a set of morals, beliefs, principles, or cultures to be followed. Hinduism, Sikhism, and Buddhism are examples of this. Or two, most other faith systems are based on a private experience of an individual with the divine. For example, Islam and Mormonism would be two examples that fall into this category. By contrast, Christianity stakes its entire hope on a historical event that occurred in public. And as a result, Christianity is at its core not about beliefs, principles, or morals. It's about news that has happened and spread around the world. The resurrection either happened or it didn't. And if it happened, it changes everything. The question I want to move us into is, what was God doing in the resurrection? If this news is true, what was happening in the big picture? So I'm going to invite you guys to just take a moment, breathe, reflect on what I've shared, and then Alex is going to be up to continue our discussion.
Awesome. Well, welcome back, guys. As Robin said, my name is Alex and have the joy, the privilege of continuing this talk as we celebrate Easter and consider today the resurrection of Jesus. I want us to continue to consider this idea that the resurrection of Jesus is our hope. I want to unpack this thought that it is our true source of hope. Now, when I say the word hope here, I don't mean like wishful thinking. I hope this happens. I hope there's no more snow this year. When I say hope here, I'm talking about a confident assurance, something that we can be confident in. What, if anything, are you confidently sure of in this life? More than that, what are you confidently sure of will be good, like truly good? As history shows us as humans, we, we thought we could have hope strictly in ourselves, in humanity, even in our progress that we make. But as far as we've come, the human condition, we can see it, the human condition is still in the same place that it's always been. For century after century, we've been trying to control all that seemed uncontrollable, the things outside of ourselves, trying to control nature, trying to control disease or technological needs. And yet, as worthy as those things are, the greatest need remains. That is controlling not external nature, but the human condition, internal human nature. In other words, maybe you would agree, maybe you would recognize this, we need hope, but we need hope that is outside of ourselves. And I want to continue Robin's thought there that the, the news of Jesus' empty tomb changes everything. And in fact, it is the greatest news for us, for our world crying out, grasping for some sort of confident assurance, for some sort of hope. We need a true living hope. But as author, pastor Tim Keller beautifully says, he says this quote, accepting the bare fact of the resurrection does not automatically make it a living hope for us. We must understand not only that it happened, but just as important what it means, end quote. So what does the resurrection mean? I wanna share just three kind of brief thoughts today, what the resurrection means. Firstly, it means hope for tomorrow. Secondly, it means hope for today. And thirdly, it is our unwavering hope. So firstly, hope for tomorrow. As Robin said, it would, it would have been incredible enough to just hear the news that Jesus, who was dead, was back alive again. I mean, just think about if you had been there that day, that weekend, and heard that news. Save for a few examples in Scripture, we all understand that death is the end. People just don't come back to life, particularly after three days of being dead. But you see, that is the reality of, of earth, of our space. The resurrection of Jesus was the ultimate collision of heaven and earth, our space and God's space. In other words, something new had taken place suddenly on that Easter morning. As Robin said, that the message of Easter, the good news, is, a, is news about an event. It's not good advice on how to live. It's something has happened that has changed everything. And it even went beyond the unbelievable reality that, that someone who was dead could be alive again. You see, Jesus simply wasn't simply resuscitated. 
He wasn't even alive in the same exact form as before, but the Gospels tell us that he had a new transformed body on that Easter Sunday morning. His resurrected body, it was indeed physical. He ate with the disciples. They reached out and they touched the scars, the marks where the nails of the cross were. But there is also something different about this resurrected body. At first, they, his closest followers didn't recognize him. And then when they did, they noticed that it was Jesus, but there was something different about him. They noticed that his body, though physical, also seemed to be outside of normal physical nature. On one occasion, right after Good Friday, the, or after the Resurrection Sunday, the disciples were, were hiding in a house, in a locked room. And John says that in his gospel, that suddenly Jesus showed up. He just appeared to them in the room. As N.T. Wright says, he says this, quote, This new body of Jesus seemed to be equally at home in two interlocking dimensions of created reality. What the Bible calls heaven and earth. God's space and our space. So how is this hope for us for tomorrow? Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18. He says that he, Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. Now listen to this, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Jesus' resurrection was the first, the beginning of something new that is still to come. You see, it can be our hope because it changed everything that we know about our existence, about eternity, and about what God is ultimately doing, what he's up to. We now have hope that God will do for us and all of creation the same thing he did for Jesus, which is take that which is completely broken, battered, humiliated, destroyed, and actually make it new. Not just as it was, but totally renewed, beyond the reach of any more pain or any more suffering. This is our hope. It's the promise that we cling to of new creation. You see, our hope for tomorrow is not that God is going to take away a certain number of people and help us escape to a strange place called heaven. No, our hope is that our God is bringing heaven here. That heaven and earth will continue to meet. That God will continue to make all things new and ultimately one day there will be final justice, final renewal and healing of all that sin has broken. Listen to this passage from, beautiful passage from the last book of the Bible, from Revelation, where John receives this, this picture of this, this new creation from the Lord. Revelation 21, one to four. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride, adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Hope for tomorrow. This, 
this life that we know isn't all that there is. We have an eternal hope, a hope that our God will continue to work, that justice will win, that God will continue to do what he started at that first Resurrection Sunday with Jesus. You see, the, 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 the longing that we have, the feeling, the great longing for a better world, for the end of suffering and pain, it isn't wishful thinking. It isn't a, a help maybe, no, it's a confident assurance. Jesus is the firstborn of this new creation. When he walked out of that tomb on Easter Sunday morning, it changed absolutely everything. We have hope for tomorrow. Secondly, we also have hope for today. Hope for today. So the cross and the resurrection, it was the bringing together of heaven and earth, as I said, but it was also the bringing together of the present and the future. In the sense that God's renewing healing power that will be fully seen one day, when Jesus was raised from the dead, that power was suddenly thrust upon the present and is at work even now today. You see, we have hope that you and I can actually be made new. We can be changed by God even now. We can be made into the people that God originally made us to be by his power and not our effort and striving. So we can have hope, hope for ourselves, hope for our relationships, our community, our entire world. You see, there is an answer to the evil of the world and it starts with me being changed by God's spirit and God's power. We have hope. Now the question is, okay, how do we then know God's power? And really simply through his presence, through his presence. You see, because Jesus is alive, he's present with us. He is not simply an ancient figure with instructions on moral living. No, he is the living God present with us, desiring to walk through life with us, just as he did the very beginning of the story with Adam and Eve in creation. There with them, there is this intimacy with God, a sense of home in relationship with him. What sin has separated us from, Jesus has now restored once again. You see, after his resurrection, before Jesus left physical space of earth, he said to his followers, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Can you see it? Jesus is the meeting place of God and man, heaven and earth. It's through him that we are welcomed back into the intimacy that we once had with the creator of the universe. It's through Jesus that we can pray and talk to God, that we can know him personally and have a life of purpose and direction with him. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, he is present with us and his presence changes us. There is a, a really incredible story in uh, the Gospels, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's a story of a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was by trade, he was a tax collector, but he was a, a wicked tax collector. He was infamous for just simply outright stealing from people under the cover of his job. He became rich, very, very wealthy, simply off of just cheating people constantly. And as you can imagine, he was fairly despised and commonly labeled as a sinner, as if we all aren't. But one day, this, this, this notorious 
cheating tax collector Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming through his town and Jesus was starting to garner quite a bit of attention, Zacchaeus was eager to see him. And so in the chaos of this massive crowd of people, Zacchaeus made a pretty elaborate, great attempt to try to catch a glimpse of Jesus when suddenly Jesus actually found Zacchaeus. And he called him by name and he said that he wanted to go to Zacchaeus's house and spend some time with him. The Bible says that Zacchaeus joyfully welcomed Jesus in. They spent the day together, much to the shock and anger of those who would label him as sinner. The beautiful thing about the story is that we have no idea what he and Jesus talked about. None of the gospel writers record what they said to one another, except for this at the end or part of the day. They spent time around the supper table, we imagine, and at some point during their day, Zacchaeus stopped, he stood up and he said to Jesus in Luke 19, he said, look, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I will pay back four times as much. Why the change? It wasn't moral, it wasn't legalistic, because the one who simply feels guilty for breaking a rule rarely goes beyond merely correcting that initial wrong. No, Zacchaeus was completely changed. He came face to face with, with perfect, just, compassionate, merciful God, and everything in his life became clear. This is our hope too, church, as the human heart, as we encounter the goodness of God, everything changes. There is hope for you and I. Now, maybe you hear a story like that and think, sure, yeah, but we would need to have that same kind of encounter with Jesus himself. And the truth is, we can. We know his presence, even now today, through the Bible, through Scripture. Hebrews chapter 4 says that God's word is alive and active. It's how he speaks to us, even today. Second Timothy says that Scripture is God-breathed, and it speaks life right now. You see, when we humble ourselves before God's word, it will change us from the inside out. There's hope. We also know his presence through the Holy Spirit. When we accept who Jesus is and actually surrender our lives, the Bible says that God, that God gives us his spirit to dwell within us. And quite incredibly, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says that that same spirit is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. You see, there is hope of God breathing life into our lives, breathing real life into you. He is the God who brings clarity to confusion, healing to pain. He restores relationships. He brings freedom from cycles of destruction. Our God is a God who continues to raise dead things to life. There's hope for us. Hope for today. Our fears, our guilt, temptations, longings, loneliness, purposelessness, all things can be given life when placed into the hands of risen Jesus who's making all things new. Do you see it? How it's hope for you and I, even now today, we can be made new into the people God originally created us to be. Finally, the resurrection of Jesus means an unwavering hope for us. The cross and the resurrection, incredible weekend, really were the coronation of a new king. 
God's kingdom, God's reign suddenly burst into earth and Jesus was exalted as king, given the seat of authority. Listen to Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Paul says, for this reason, God highly exalted him, Jesus, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Matthew 28, before Jesus ascended back into heaven after being raised from the dead, he said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority has been given to Jesus. What do we see in the resurrection? We see God who, who could have, maybe should have rejected us. But instead of rejecting humanity, he has come to redeem us and be the true king that we've always needed. Church, we have, we have hope. There is a God who is seated on the throne. He is in control and he is good. Earth is not heading to hell in a handbasket. No, Jesus is bringing heaven here. All authority has once again been given to him. In other words, Jesus is our Lord. And for that, we have hope. This is an unwavering hope because this Jesus who is now reigning, he's proven himself to be good. Think about that. We needed a king, but more than just any king, we needed a good, a truly good king. We needed one who could be trusted. One in whom we could completely give our lives to knowing that they will always be good. And Jesus has proven that. There's no evil in him. He was tempted in every way, the Bible says, as we are, yet he did not sin. He even faced the ultimate test and he proved himself good. He allowed evil to crush him. Though he was perfectly innocent of sin, he didn't retaliate in the moment. He died even for those who were nailing him to the cross. Jesus is our king. His ways are good even if we don't understand. Therefore, we can have hope for tomorrow, for today, and a hope that is unwavering. Just in a moment, I'm going to join Robin, and we're going to kind of land our thoughts in a brief little conclusion. So sit tight, and uh, we'll be right back. Awesome. All right, Robin. So how do you want to land this today? We've talked a, a lot, but as you kind of reflect on Easter, the resurrection, where does your mind go for kind of like a so what? What, is this, what does this mean to you? And, and where can we kind of land our thoughts here today? Yeah, I think, I think for me, Alex, it, it really goes down to this idea that, that, that everything that we believe as Christians is rooted in an event that happened. Mm, yeah. Um, so often, I think in, in the world of 
of religion and faith and things like that. It turns into a debate about ideas. Um, and we don't need to do that to examine whether or not Christianity is true. Sure, yeah. It's not about do we like the ideas of Christianity. It, quite frankly, it doesn't matter if we like the ideas or not. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? If Jesus rose from the dead, then everything that we read about in Scripture, mm. that's an implication of that we now have to also accept. Right. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then none of it matters. And I, that's such a liberating thought because it means we don't, we don't have to get stuck like in the weeds of debating issues or trying to solve like all these really complex problems. We actually sure. just have to ask the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Did it happen? Did, did it happen? It, yeah. And if it did, then, then everything else comes into alignment with that or not. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I obviously believe that, yes, Jesus did rise from the dead. And that changes not just what I believe, <laughs> um, but it changes fundamentally who I am. Absolutely. How I live my life, who I live my life with. Everything is based on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. So awesome. the so what is, <laughs> everything's the so everything's what. Everything's <laughs> the so what. But I think you've helped to simplify it. Yeah. Either yeah. this is true or it's not. And I think maybe for some of you that are grappling, like, I don't know about Christianity or I'm, I'm asking questions, I think if we can just really distill it down to the question of the resurrection, hmm. that that is the single most important question to grapple with. Absolutely. So how about you? Alex? Yeah, it ties in perfect. My so what is just wanting us to see that there's a beautiful invitation to respond yeah. personally. So um, the next step from, from saying like, yeah, I believe it happened is saying, I believe Jesus did it for me. Yeah. And, and believing that he is now living God, reigning king. Yeah. And to then say, so the answer or the, the next question is, will, will I give him my life? Right. You know, will I allow Jesus to be Lord? Right. Uh, and I think I just love that quote of like, we can agree that it happened, but in order for it to be a living hope, we need to say, this is what it means. Yeah. That Jesus wants my, my whole life and I can trust him with it. Um, and so I really think, yeah, I just want to invite us to, it's a, it's a, it's a big surrender, but it's not a complicated thing. You can even pray with those who... Uh, who are dialoguing with you, pray with uh, those in your simple church, if you're in a simple church. Yep. Uh, a simple confession to, to Jesus. I believe you did this for me. Be Lord of my life. Yes. Um, and that's the beautiful invitation of Easter. Yeah. Well, the Apostle Paul, I think, brilliantly sums it up in his letter to the Romans. Uh, if we confess with our mouth mm, that Jesus, Jesus is, is Lord, Lord yeah. and we believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful invitation, Alex. You know, And for those of you that are, are grappling with that, that would be our invitation today is to say, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And if you do, if you say, yes, I believe that, to then receive him and say, okay, I accept you as my Lord and I trust you with my life because I see that you really are good. So what a beautiful invitation. Awesome. Thank you, Alex. Yeah. Um, we're going to continue our conversation this coming Thursday at 7.30 p.m. by looking at the significance and the evidence around the very first disciples. Um, their story is so important in understanding the significance of Jesus and uh, actually gives us an even greater confidence that what we believe in his death and resurrection really did happen. Mm. And then the following Sunday, we're going to look at the 
the entire biblical narrative and the evidence that that gives us. We're not done building the case yet, but um, we'll see you Thursday or Sunday. Originally, we were planning to do baptisms this afternoon. In fact, those are about to happen, but unfortunately, we couldn't get the live stream of the baptisms working, so they're going to record it, and we'll play it at uh, either the Thursday or the Sunday coming up this week. So please be praying, cheering, and supporting our dear sisters in Christ, uh, Jen and Vivian, who are being baptized just a little, a little down the road from where we're shooting this. And uh, send them a message, send them some love, and then make sure you tune in on Thursday to see uh, the recording of their baptisms. That's all for us. We'll see you Thursday and Sunday to continue to explore Jesus at the center of history.